as part of a community. And so picking picking up where we left off last time, we're going to start with verse 6, read 6 through 8. So if you would stand with me in honor of God's word this morning. Romans 12, starting in verse 6, Paul writes, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come right now and just reveal the Son to us in spectacular ways. Jesus, I pray that the way that we are able to see you this morning, God, will just wash out any uh, self-centeredness, self-focus in us, God, that we would make so much of you that we would decrease and be changed from the inside out. And so, Father, I ask that your will will be done during this time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to point out something about the beginning of chapter 12 here that should really tell us a lot about what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Like I've talked about before, the first 11 chapters of Roman was all about doctrine, and then the remaining chapters are how we apply all that doctrine to life. Um, Chapter 12 begins the application part of the letter, and Paul uses just three verses to tell us how to apply all that doctrine to our lives as individuals. From verse 4 to the end of this letter, everything he writes is going to be written in the context of how we apply it in community. And so if we measured this by verse count, we'd say that there were just three verses spent on how we live as individuals and five chapters and 115 verses on how we are to live as part of a community, as part of God's family. And this just confirms what you've heard me say many times now, that in the kingdom of God, community is valued a lot more than individualism. So if you're following along in the notes there in your bulletin, the first point is this. Following Jesus is more about living in a relationship with other believers than it is about living as an individual. And so from here on out in Romans, everything Paul writes needs to be read and applied and interpreted in the context of community, how we live together corporately as part of God's family, because that's how Paul is directing all of it. Now, I want to quickly recap what we talked about two weeks ago, because uh, what we talk about today will just be a continuation of that, and I want us to to have that same kind of frame of of mind that we took um, uh, two weeks ago. One of the main points in that message was that Christianity isn't meant to be private and individualistic. It's meant to be visible and, and, and corporate, um, communal. And I talked about how, you know, I've heard several people say to me, well, my faith is a private matter. I like to keep my faith to myself because I see it as just being a personal private matter. And I said, if your faith is just a private matter, then your faith isn't Christianity. 
Because Christianity wasn't meant to be private and individualistic. It was meant to be visible and communal as part of something much bigger than just yourself. We also talked about how one of the things that Jesus did, one of the consequences of of the gospel is that we are now able to see things the way that God sees them. And we talked about the three safeguards that God has put in place to ensure that we are able to process life from his perspective. And those three safeguards are the scripture in front of you, the spirit inside of you, and the saints around you. And I talked about how those things are not mutually exclusive, but they've got to be used in conjunction, all three of them, with, with one another in order for us to be able to accurately discern God's will. So let's say you're one of those who aren't very comfortable at engaging in relationships with other people at all. You would much rather stay to yourself, tend to your own business, and so you do. But you do read your Bible, and you try to be as sensitive to the Holy Spirit inside of you as as much as possible. So really, you're using two out of those three safeguards. Well, what that means is that you really only have two-thirds of God's perspective on things. You'll never be able to fully see things the way that God wants you to unless you start incorporating that third thing that he has given to us, which is relationship with other believers, with the rest of the family. We also learned that pride is the number one enemy of community. Pride is what keeps community from developing, and it's what stops community from continuing. And that's why Paul tells us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think in verse 3 before he starts telling us how to live as part of a community. And then we learn that our true individuality, those things that make us unique and special and important and, and valuable, those things can only really be discovered in relation to how we fit in the body of Christ. And the reason for that is because God created you and saved you for that. Because you fill a specific role in the body. Your gifts and passions were given to you by God, not primarily so that you can build a successful career with those things, but primarily so that those things that God has given you will enable the rest of the body to be all that we can be. This church family needs the things that are inside of you. And here in verse 6 through 8, Paul mentions certain gifts in particular that when we put into practice, we reflect God's glory here on earth. And if you were here last Sunday during the Easter message, you heard me talk about how the temple in the Old Testament was a foreshadow of us being the temple of God today. And in that, I said that the magnificence and beauty of Solomon's temple that was seen on the outside let everyone know that the manifest presence of God resided on the inside. And so in the same way, how we live and relate to one another as members of each other signify to the world around us that the very manifest presence of God himself resides in us. Remember, Jesus said himself when he was here that the primary identifying mark of those who belong to him 
how the rest of the world is going to know that you are a Christian is not by how moral you live your life. It's not by how often that you go to church. It's not the fact that you vote Republican in every election. But Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. That is the number one identifying mark of someone who belongs to Jesus. When With the Old Testament temple, it was the gold and the fine jewels on the outside. But with God's temple today, us, it's our love for one another. And so these gifts that Paul mentions here in this text are just some of the adornments of the temple. Now remember, this is a continuation of verse 3, which says that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think of ourselves in relation to our faith. Measure the way that you see yourself by the way that you see Jesus. That's what we talked about three weeks ago. This is the opposite of thinking too highly of ourselves. And so the opposite of high self-esteem is not low self-esteem. The actual opposite of high self-esteem is high Christ-esteem. The opposite of pride, which we would call self-exaltation, is not self-condemnation, but it is Christ-exaltation. This means that the best way to use your spiritual gifts, and really the only way to use your gifts effectively, is to lose sight of yourself in the brilliance of the love of Christ for you to the extent that it spills over in love to others. Now, I want you to notice the words that Paul uses here in relation to some of these gifts. In verse 8, he says that if you're going to give, do it with liberality. I know some of the translations that you have in your Bibles there is going to use a different word. But the, the word that Paul used there in the original Greek essentially means to do it without any thought as to how it affects you. And so what that means is when you give, you don't give going, now, if I give this much, then, then I'll still be able to pay this bill. But if I give this much, then I'm not going to be able to get that boat I've been saving up for as soon as I wanted to. No, it's just you just give without any thought as to how it's going to affect you. You just trust God with the consequences of that. Leave the consequences up to him and you just, you just give. Don't worry about how it's going to affect you. And folks, that's New Testament giving. That's New Covenant giving. It is not limited to just a 10%. God says just give. Give liberally. Give out of the abundance of your heart without any thought as to how it's going to affect you. And let me handle that. And then he says if you're going to lead, to do it with diligence. The word there literally means to do it with an excited anticipation, not with drudgery, not with, oh, I can't believe I'm having to lead these people, but with excited anticipation. And then he says, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And I just love this one because the Greek word used for cheerfulness right there is the word hilarotes which is the word, our word, hilarious, comes from. 
So he says, you just pour so much mercy out to folks that it's just hilarious. And people can only look at that and go, oh my gosh, they can only laugh about it. I mean, it is so against what the world would do. It is so against how we would naturally want to respond to somebody. You're extending so much mercy that the only thing anybody can do is just laugh. It's hilarious. Now, what we see in these words is that there is a certain attitude that's motivating these actions. And it's definitely not an attitude of begrudging obedience. It is a want-to attitude rather than a have-to attitude. By using these words like this, Paul is showing the next point in your notes there. That Christianity is not a duty-driven religion. It's the overflow of a joyous relationship with Jesus. Now, I want to caution you about doing something with this text that um, many people too often do, and that is to view these gifts in some kind of mechanical way to where they have these fixed boundaries and come in separate packages and just perfectly separated and compartmentalized. And so don't think that if you are strong in one particular gift that you can't have another. These gifts are not finite and separate. They are fluid and they have a lot of overlap to them. Like, I mean, how do you draw a line between doing acts of service and mercy? I mean, they're essentially kind of the same thing. Or how do you separate teaching from giving? Because if you're teaching... You're giving your time. You're giving of yourself. And so uh, in a lot of these gifts, if you're doing one, a lot of times you're doing another one right along with it. But there are, are those who like to separate these gifts and put them in these little compartments and in doing so really provides a convenient out for them if there's some of these things that they don't want to do. If these gifts are limited and distinct and separate, then I could say, well, I'm not going to give because that's not my spiritual gift. Or I'm not going to operate in that because my spiritual gift is this. There's a lot of folks who are like, well, I've only been given the gift of criticism, and so I'm just going to use that in the body. Just FYI, criticism is not a spiritual gift. Although there are some who, it seems, believe that it is because that's about the only thing that they operate in the body. I love it. They'll just call it discernment. I'm operating in discernment. Yeah, right. It's not discernment. It's just criticism that comes from a rotten heart. So call it what it is. (laughs) Now, I doubt that any Christian ever had just one spiritual gift their whole life because that's not something that you really find in Scripture. God's gifts oftentimes come in degrees and they come in mixtures and they can change depending on the season and the situation that God has you in. And I can recall several times where if you were to ask me what my strongest spiritual gifts are, there are some things that I definitely wouldn't put down there. But then God may have me in a specific situation where that gift is required for the need of the moment and he will impart that to me and I'll operate in it. And, and so in that moment, I had that spiritual gift. And so they can always change and be dependent on however God, God leads you. Um, 
And there's another important thing that I want to point out here, and that is that even though Paul is defining these as spiritual gifts in this text, nearly every one of these things are, uh, are things that Christians should do, no matter if it's a spiritual gift in you or not. For instance, the Greek word that he uses for service is the same word used in Ephesians 4.12, where Paul says that the job of every pastor is to equip the saints for the work of of service. It's not saying just equip those with the gift of service, but to equip all the saints for service. Paul lists mercy as a gift here, but we all know that as Christians, mercy should be a character trait of all of us. Giving isn't something that just those with the gift of giving should do. Uh, Giving should be a big part of the life of every Christian because it is a reflection of the very nature and character of God who is the biggest giver in the entire universe. 2 Corinthians 9-7 says that God loves a cheerful giver. So what's the difference between something being a, a virtue that every Christian should practice and something that can be called a spiritual gift? Well, here's what I believe is the difference. These virtues that all Christians should have can be called spiritual gifts when they come more joyfully and more fruitfully for some than they do for others. In other words, there are some who seem to take an unusual amount of delight in in doing some of these things. And when they do them, it seems to produce a greater result than it does if somebody else were to do these. The Holy Spirit has so shaped their hearts that they find themselves drawn to some virtues more than others. There are some of you here, or many of you here, who give financially to the church every Sunday because you know giving is a virtue that we should practice. But then there are some who I know they give every chance they get, not just when the plate is passed around on Sunday morning. They give every opportunity they can, and it brings them tons of joy to be able to do so. They can't help but give because they feel like something's going to explode on the inside if they don't. It can't be contained. And so that would be someone with the spiritual gift of giving. We all know that as Christians, we should serve one another. But I've seen some of you here that have that particular gift of of service, You don't really care to be seen or or recognized. You just get this uh, unusual amount of joy in just being able to do it. And the fact that you get to do it is your recognition and your reward enough. And so I would say that those of you who, who fit into that, you have the spiritual gift of service. Um. So I would say that one of the things that defines a spiritual gift in your notes there is that it is a Christian virtue that one finds an unusual amount of joy in doing. But I also use the word fruitful. If your activity isn't producing any fruit, isn't producing any positive results, then there's a good chance that that may not be your spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts aren't just natural abilities that we put to use in the church. They are spirit-filled forms of love that help build up other people. And so if you think that you have the gift of exhortation or encouragement, but nobody really ever seems to be helped by your words, 
then chances are you do not have the gift of exhortation. If you think that you have the gift of leadership, but no one seems to want to follow you, then I will tell you right now, you don't have the gift of leadership. And that's something you see a lot. People like to say, oh, yeah, I've got the gift of leadership. Because that makes them look good. You know, that's one of those important, important, out there kind of gifts. And then I'm going, well, who's following you? <laughs> and if that's a spiritual gift, somebody's going to just naturally want to follow you. And but so... There's got to be some fruit with that. So one of the measures of something being a spiritual gift is that others are spiritually helped. And so in your notes, a spiritual gift is a fruitful form of love. Larry, I know I'm driving you crazy with this microphone, but it's slipping off here. Like I said, all of these are Christian virtues. There are things that every Christian should be doing, whether or not it's their particular spiritual gift or not. Um, the thing is, if we only depended on and expected those with the spiritual gifts to be able to, to do those things, the church as a whole wouldn't be very effective at all. But I want you to think of a term gift in another way too. The fact that Paul calls these virtues gifts, I believe also means something else. And so whether these things um, or a normal virtue, or you get an unusual amount of joy in doing them, either way, it is a gift of God for you to be able to do these things. Remember, because of what Jesus has done, obedience isn't something that we do in order to be blessed. Obedience is the blessing. It is a blessing to be able to obey God because before you were saved, obedience to the creator of the universe was an impossible task. I mean, wouldn't you say, man, it sure would be good if I could just walk in obedience to God all the time? Yeah, that'd be an awesome thing. That would be great. Before salvation, you couldn't do that. But now, because of what Jesus has done for you, you get to experience the incredible blessing of being able to walk in obedience to the creator of the universe. And so we should view these Christian virtues with the attitude of, because of what Jesus has done, it is a privilege, it is a gift to me to serve, to give, to encourage others, to lead in God's kingdom, to, to be able to do this as part of his family. And so I believe that Paul using the word gift has a double meaning there. And that's the context of all these verses. I mean, because of chapters 1 through 11, this is how we can live. This is how we get to live. It's not... If I give and if I lead and if I serve, then God's going to do this, this, and this for me. No, it's because of what Jesus has done, I now can give. I can serve. I can lead. I can encourage other people. It is a complete change in your mindset and your perspective when you approach it, not from what God will do, but from the perspective of what Jesus has already done. Now, what would the church look like if everyone practiced these virtues on a regular basis? Man, 
I mean, if every, if all 1,000 some odd official members of this church looked for ways to serve each other every time we got together, what would that look like? I mean, what if every member of, of this church went around encouraging one another? What if everyone in the church just started giving financially with no regard to how it affected them personally? Because I'm telling you right now, not everybody gives. The rule is, there's only 20% of the people in any given church that give 80% of the funds. But man, if we could change that and everybody just give because it's a natural outflow of their relationship with Jesus, you know what that would look like? You know how much we'd be able to accomplish for the kingdom? I promise you this, you never get bothered for another fundraiser again. Wouldn't that be nice? I don't have to do any more car washes. Man, <laughs> that'd be good. But not just giving. I mean, if everybody started walking in these things, we wouldn't have to beg people to come help in the nursery, in the children's department. And if everybody saw these things as just a privilege and a gift to be able to do them, not because some preacher was up here guilting them into it and twisting their arms in order to get them to move, but because we saw Jesus for who he was and realize the impact of what he has done. And we want to get in on that. We want to reflect that back to him. If we all did these things on a regular basis, you think the culture around us would take notice? I bet they would. They'd be like, man, there's something going on in there. There's something powerful in there. I want to be a part of that. Instead of being adorned with gold and fine jewels like in the Old Testament, the temple of God today would be adorned with love and grace and mercy and service and giving and encouragement. Things that no nation would ever be able to destroy again. The temple of God can't be destroyed like the Babylonians did in the Old Testament because it's not built and it's not adorned with things material things it's adorned with things that last into eternity you know one of the reasons i believe that our country is in the sad state of affairs that it is in today is because the church in many ways hasn't done what she's been called to do here in america you know when churches across this country are allowed to become nothing more than entertainment venues and social clubs then it no longer displays the magnificence of God's glory, nor walks in his power. And sadly, that's what many churches have become today. And because of that, there's been this huge void that has been left in our nation by the church as a whole. And the government is coming in to try to fill that void. When the church no longer takes care of its own the way that we're supposed to, the only place for then, then for people to turn is to the federal government. And when the church allows that, and not only allows it and turns a blind eye to it, but gladly pawns their responsibility off to the government, and they're going to let them take care of people, then the whole nation is completely out of order. And we wonder why we're in the condition that we're in. 
as I've been listening to the Spirit and studying more on what it means to be the church, I came across a verse in 1 Corinthians 12 that really um, jumped out at me. And it stuck with me, and so I started contemplating it and studying about what it really means, and most of us are familiar with it. It's 1 Corinthians 12, 26, which simply says, if one member suffers, all the other members suffer with it. Most of us have probably heard that verse quoted many times, but I'm not so sure that we've really really ever thought about what that means. I know I didn't, just until here recently. I don't believe it's talking about the whole body suffering in a figurative way. Or that it means if one of our members is suffering, then we're going to be sad for them. It says if one suffers, all the other members suffer with it. And so I believe there is a tangible aspect to this that's not just emotional or figurative. Here's what I take it to mean. Let's say that someone, a member of this church family, is suffering financially. If you're suffering financially and I'm a part of you and, and you're a part of me, like we talked about two weeks ago, then I'm going to suffer with you. If the suffering that you're going through is financial, then I'm going to suffer financially in order to help you. I mean, think about it, church. If everyone in the body suffered financially just a little in order to help those who are suffering financially a lot, we'd be able to take care of everybody. Nobody would have to be go begging the government for help anymore. And this is a way the church could start turning the hearts of the people away from the government and back to Christ. If the church as a whole in the United States began doing what we've actually been called to do in Scripture, I promise you we would put the federal government right out of business. And it would make it real hard for them to promise all these entitlements to people just so they can secure votes for years to come. And speaking of that, don't believe these politicians when they start quoting scripture in order to defend some of the programs that they are trying to put out there. I mean, there is a biblical mandate and a role for government to play, which we're going to get to in the very next chapter. But anywhere in scripture, when it's talking about taking care of the poor and reaching out to the needy, it is speaking directly to the church of God and not to the federal government. Okay, so what does all this look like exactly for Evangelistic Temple? I'm about to tell you because this is something that the elders of this church have actually been talking about. So what does this look like for us and how can we actually put this into practice instead of us just going, man, that was a good sermon. I hope we start doing that. Let's actually do it. How can we do that? And one of the things that spurred this conversation is just the way that, you know, the oil industry right now has been tanking so bad. And uh, because this whole area of East Texas is so dependent on the oil field, 
it affects everyone, not just those who directly tie to the oil industry. And so because of the situation of things right now, we've got several families in our church that are suffering. They're hurting pretty bad right now. And I'm telling you right now, and I've been thinking about this and whether or not I should say it, and, um, but as I'm reading Scripture, here's the truth. If we have a lot of members of our body that's having to go to the government for help, then that's a big indictment on us. It is. Just simply for the fact that that's not the government's role, that's the church's role. And so we're going to do something about that. And so what we have decided to do is that the third Sunday of every month, we're going to take up a special offering. And all the money that is taken up for that offering is going to be specifically earmarked for family members of this church body. We have a benevolence fund that helps other needy people that aren't just included, but this one's going to be specifically for church family members. It's not going to go to my salary. It's not going to go to new paint on the walls. It's specifically for these financial needs of families. And don't think that we're just going to start handing money out to people who come up and ask for it. I mean, we're going to be good stewards of this and make sure there are legitimate needs going on. Um, we're going to do it on the third Sunday of every month, but we're actually going to start it this, this Sunday. And one thing I want to ask you about this, don't let this replace the normal giving that you do to the church, okay? Um, don't, don't switch things around to where there's no suffering involved. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if one member of the body suffers, we suffer with it. And we give with liberality without any regards to how our giving is going to affect us personally. That's scriptural. And folks, this is one of the ways that we can stand out in the world. Because in the world, it's every man for himself. It's, it's survival of the fittest. It's don't come asking me for help. You go ask the government. I mean, I've been working hard for this, and so I should be able to enjoy it. This is mine. That's not just an attitude with kids. It's an attitude with many people. And I hate to say it, but it's not even just an attitude out in the world, but it's an attitude that a lot of people have within the church too because it's one of the examples of the way that we have allowed the world to affect the church instead of the other way around. But I do believe that the Lord is in the process of changing that right now, and he's bringing us back to what it's all about you know, the way that he has been leading us back into a rediscovery of the simplicity and purity of the gospel, what that means is that we also get to rediscover the implications of that and start to experience what that looks like in real time as we live lives. And that is what we're doing. You know, this is exactly the way the early church operated. In Acts 2.45, it says, And they began selling their property and possessions as anyone uh, begin sharing with all as anyone might have need. I mean, wouldn't it be a beautiful thing to see that kind of selfless attitude in the church again? It would. Um, it would be a beautiful thing to see that in the church again. <laughs> this is so foreign to some of you. You don't even know how to take this right now, right? <laughs> thing is, I believe God is doing something 
pretty neat in our church body right now. And I'm so thankful to him that we get to be a part of what he's doing. And I think we're going to see some incredible things in the next few months. And so I would encourage you, I would exhort you to get in on what God is doing and use what he has given you to fulfill your role in this body. Let's pray. Lord, I believe that your spirit is here with us, God. We know it is because your manifest presence resides in us. Those who have put their trust in, in you for salvation. The name above all names, the name of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit will begin to just peel the scales off of our eyes. to Where we have not been seeing things as clearly as you would have us to. God, where there is need of conviction, where there is need of repentance, I pray that that would happen here this morning. And once again, Lord, that you, oh, Jesus, that you would just let us see you for who you really are. So that everything that I've been talking about, God, would just be a natural response of worship. Just a joyous response to be able to get in on what you're doing, to live out the ramifications of the cross and the grave. So God, I pray, I believe you're birthing something huge here right now. God, I thank you that in your sovereign grace, you have allowed us to be a part of what you're doing. God, I know it's not because of anything in us, but it's because of everything in you. And Lord, we ask this, not so that the culture around us would see what a great church we are, but they would see what a great God you are. And they would be drawn to you, King Jesus. And salvation would come. Lives would be changed. God, we love you so much. Holy Spirit, I ask you to just have your way in the remainder of this time as we go into this time of ministry. We just lead people to minister in ways that you have called them to. God, we thank you so much. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to have our regular time of ministry where the leaders church and the spouses will be down here on the front rows if you need specific prayer for anything. We're also just going to worship God for who he is and why we do.